listening to episode 59 of the Daily Growth Discipleship Podcast. I'm Chris Lambert. And I'm Josh Havens. And we're on a journey to learn what it means to live a lifestyle of discipleship. We're glad you're joining us and hope that as you set aside this time for God, that he would help you grow today in the everyday moments of life. Today, we're talking to David Fitch. David is the B.R. Lindner Chair of Evangelical Theology at Northern Seminary. He is also the founding pastor of Life on the Vine Christian Community, a missional church in the northwest suburbs of Chicago. David coaches a network of church plants in the Christian and Missionary Alliance, and he writes, speaks, and lectures on issues the local church must face in mission, including cultural engagement, leadership, and theology. He's also the author of numerous articles and books. His latest book, The Church of Us Versus Them, offers new patterns and practices that move the church beyond making enemies to being the presence of Christ in the world. In John 17, Jesus prayed, Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. You don't have to look far among Christians these days to realize we are terrible at this thing Jesus prayed for in John 17. Legitimate issues of racism and how we can best love our neighbor become an arena in which we attempt to prove our point no matter the cost. In this episode, David offers a solution that we believe hits the nail on the head. Instead of choosing one side or the other, he calls us back to the Christ who saved us and to our calling as Christ's presence in the world. Dave, welcome to the podcast. Good to be with you guys. Uh, uh, interesting getting to know you in the pre-podcast chat. <laughs> yeah, it's one uh, of our favorite times with guests is, uh, you know, just kind of getting to know each other off camera, off uh, off recording. It's it's a good time. I mean, um, uh, I'm a little older than you guys, I'm judging, but, you know, I think you, you two and I have been through a few of the same things in church life. Yeah, I, I think we we, we yeah. definitely have it, it. It comes through in in your your writing and reading, um, but man, you still you have uh, a lot of wisdom to teach us. So I think I'm For really sure, excited yeah. to, to to talk with you about that. First, got introduced with, to you um, to your book, Faithful Presence. Uh, seven Disciplines That Shape the Church for Mission. A few years ago, I just picked it up randomly at a conference I was at, saw it, and I was like, okay, I got to look at this one. And so there's several sections in there I wanted to have wanted to talk to you about. In fact, I've talked with Josh about them. Multiple times. Yeah, multiple <laughs> times. And um, But I think your book, The Church of Us Versus Them, the book we're here to talk about today, for those maybe watching, I'll show it. Um, I texted Josh like when I was early on in the book, but I said, you diagnosed the problem perfectly. And I don't mm -hmm. use that word lightly, perfectly. I think you hit mm -hmm. the nail on the head as far as the major issues that we're dealing with right now, in our, in, in, especially in the church and in the world. There is so much division, so much antagonism, and it makes me kind of want to quit all social media and stop talking to all my friends and stuff. It just, you know, and go hide in a hole sometimes. And so anyway, that's, I'm really excited to talk with you today about this book. Let's start with why did you write this? This came out last year. This was before everything kind of the whole world changed in 2020. So why did you write this book? Well, you know, I, I wrote a book uh, almost 10 years ago now uh, called The End of Evangelicalism. 
And uh, even back then, I was looking at what was going on in terms of the divisiveness, the antagonisms, the uh, the the the, uh, factioning of the church. And and it's not just like we're dividing and, and, you know, and having a few differences on our theology and our beliefs. No, these are antagonisms. These are like angry, vicious uh, things. And. And uh, so this has been going on. Oh, it's been going on for more than 10 years, but it sure seems that it's amped up in the last couple of years. So I wanted to write a book that kind of uh, took some of those difficult philosophical concepts I was working in that book 10 years ago and make them more accessible. And uh, I have a comrade at Northern Seminary where I teach. Uh, His name's Scott McKnight, and he says, he was saying, dude, you got to write that book. You, It's important. We've got to have it so that normal people can read it. And so I I, I enjoyed writing it. And uh, I think it's I think it's got an important message. And, and I just hope that uh, people will pick it up and read it carefully, because the first couple of chapters, did you find them hard, uh, Chris, the first couple of chapters? No, not at all. And I'm not a – I tell people that I am the slowest reader you'll ever meet with a master's degree because, you know, in order to do advanced studies, you have to learn how to read really fast. And I was able to to really zip through your book very quickly because I found it such an easy read. Oh, that is so encouraging. So, yeah, I think uh, it's I- very accessible to anybody. You know, you don't have to have a master's degree or anything – or bachelor's degree. I think anybody could just – pick this book up and and get going on it and you'll find it very relatable. Yeah, because I kind of started out uh, by talking about or getting down to earth uh, on this idea of antagonism and how it works. And of course, I'm working off of critique of ideology and critical theory that goes back to Europe in the last 50 years. But, um, you know, when, when cultures change, when big shifts happen, uh, and we're sitting as a church, uh, kind of holding on for dear life. Um, we either get defensive and uh, pull back in and try to defend, 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 um, and that's what a lot of this has happened. Or we we sort of try to get cultural power by accommodating ourselves, you know, making friends out there. Either way, doesn't engage the world for mission. It, it actually either separates us from the world or we blend into the world. And uh, we got to be salt and we got to be light in the world. And that means we have to engage in all these things that are challenging us as the, as the presence of Christ. That book you mentioned earlier, Faithful Presence, is all about what we're called to do. And that is be, make space for the presence of Christ to work in our lives in our church's lives, but more than that, in the people around us and in the situations we're engaged in, in the world. Jesus is drawing the world to himself if we'll just uh, make space for him to become known. Yeah. So anyways, that's what drew me to, to, to kind of uh, work on this book. I, I think we got to figure out how to go into these, these messes, these antagonisms, these struggles, these ugly things and we just got to be the presence of christ and allow him to unwind them because Mm -hmm. at the core there is something going on that jesus wants to work with 
Yeah. I think, um, and I think some, like if you were to sit down with anybody one-on-one off of social media, most people would agree that that is, that's the goal. I think, I mean, there is some debate maybe about certain details of, of that goal, but I think everybody would say that that is the goal. So it, it begs the question, how did we get here to where we can't actually sit down and work towards that goal? Where is all this antagonism coming from? Yeah. Yeah. Um, okay. Um, I think it's, uh, hold on. Let me find my Bible here. I've got, I've, I've got a mess of an office here. Oh, here, here is my Bible folks. Uh, if you're out there looking, I have a Bible here. It's actually the Greek Bible. I don't want to, I want to impress all the Pentecostals out there that, that I can read more than one language. Anyway, uh, hey, we'll, anyway. we'll follow along with that's, you if you want to go there. Hey, hey, Josh, grab my Greek Bible behind you, okay? I got, I got my New Testament back here. There we go. Okay. <laughs> Ready. At Northern Seminary would be proud of you. Unfortunately, mine is an interlinear in Scotch. <laughs> Anyways, do you recall there in 1 Corinthians 3, Paul says, For as long as there's jealousy and quarreling among you, are you not of the flesh? Are you not behaving according to human inclination? That's verse 3. For when someone says, I belong to Paul or I belong to Apollos, are you not merely human? Okay, I, or, or are you not acting out of the flesh? And when we're acting out of the flesh, we're not acting out of the spirit. We're not acting in the presence of Christ. We're acting uh, really out of our own devices. And, and you all, the, the devil wants to create anger, antagonism, enemy-making this is the way he destroys the body uh, of Christ. This is the way he destroys the church. But also he can't – Jesus works through his presence. His presence is peace. And therefore he requires space to be made for – he won't coerce. He's, he's a loving God. And when the enemy can get us fisticuff shaking, anger, Jesus is, is – can't – enter that space and do the redemptive work of the kingdom. This is why Paul says, you know, um, you're acting in the flesh. You're trying to solve arguments and solve problems out of your own anger and vitriol. And then a little later on, he goes through a little bit of uh, tracing the problem. Then he says in verse 16, don't you know you're God's temple and that God's spirit God's very presence, you know, the temple is where the presence of God centered in Jerusalem. If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy that person. It's the anger and vitriol and antagonism that destroys God's temple. And Paul's calling us back to being God's temple and making space for his presence. But um, we're, we're there because we are no longer submitting to the living presence of Christ to work in our conflicts and our struggles and our challenges and, and everything that's going on. I mean, you know, you know what it's like to be challenged uh, to be called a racist or you know what it's like to be challenged to have everything you believe about sexuality thrown up for grabs. You know what that's like and, and you feel like you want to fight and defend um, Jesus says, no, you don't have to defend yourself. Listen, open space for me to work. 
Let me unwind the brokenness and the pain. Let me bring forgiveness and and love and healing and transformation in this space. And so that's what we're called to do and be as Christians, not only at home. And believe me, sometimes home's the hardest place to do that. Not only at church, and believe me, church is sometimes the hardest place to do that. <laughs> if we mm-hmm. can't do it at home, if we can't do it at the church, we can't do it in the world. And the world desperately needs Christians who will make space for his presence. Is this kind of antagonism something that our, our Western American culture struggles with more than maybe, say, other um, cultures in the in the capital C church around the world? Oh, man, that's a really good question. Um, uh, well, I got like, I don't know, one or two comments. I don't know if they'll be at all interesting. Uh, <laughs> but I do know my, my sister uh, was a foreign uh, work, uh, international worker in Africa. There's been the same human problem there. Uh, uh, some people might say the colonialists, the Euro colonialists brought that problem to Africa. I don't know. Uh, but, uh, in Europe, I've been to Europe ministering many times, same problem there. They, I, am stunned every time I go to Europe and they say, dude, we got the same problems here that you guys got in the USA. I go, no way. (laughs) It cannot be. Oh yes. Same deal. And so I just believe that the work of the enemy, uh, does the same. I mean, I, I just see it everywhere. Um, but I believe we're at a very, very precarious and peculiar time in our own culture. Uh, and I believe the church has been on the wrong side of this one. And uh, we need to call the church back to being the church, Jesus Christ, uh, to bring healing and love and forgiveness and transformation, confession. It's okay to confess your sins. Yeah, That's actually the first step towards healing. Confess your sins one to another so you can get healed. Oh my goodness, give it up. Don't... Just admit it. Get it over with. Jesus wants to work, and and He's you're already forgiven and loved in Jesus Christ. Can we be open to what he wants to do in our lives? You see, that's one of those things that I find most ironic about the church is we're so unwilling to confess our collective sins, either of the present or the past, even though that's like the main thing that we're known for for preaching is we tell everybody, right? Like that's the that's the gateway to come to Christ is you have to— Confess and believe, right, right, the ABCs, you know, mm-hmm. of salvation or whatnot. And it's like we have such a hard time doing that ourselves when we – and I think it – I don't know. I think it's a I think it's a pride issue. I think we're – we think that once we're in – oh, actually, this is your language of the book, right? Once we're in, <laughs> we're in. And so then we create this other of those people who aren't in. And so if, if they're going to say something about us or call out a critique rightfully or wrongfully – we feel like no, we have to go on the attack because they're other than us, and you know we're the ones that know it. And we're in, <laughs> and so yeah, yeah. I do, I do want to go back and ask about because you said right, like w- once you're called a racist, once you're you, you, you're challenged on your views and sexuality, or you know, like we're talking about with Pentecostalisms, like once you're challenged about your views on speaking in tongues and everything like that, how do we go about not defending ourselves, but instead? opening ourselves up for that kind of a conversation to take place as Jesus did it. Because we have to stand up for truth, don't we? <laughs> yeah, that's that's what we hear. We have to stand up for truth. 
Yeah, I mean, um, I guess the first thing I would say is, I mean, uh, something I talk about uh, in this book, uh, and I'm even talking about it more. I'm writing a book called What is the Church, where I'm asking all of us to ask the three big questions. What is the church? Why the church? How the church? But that's mm. that's for the next book, folks, uh, next <laughs> podcast. But uh, uh, whenever belief, what we believe, is separated from discipleship, mm. uh, what, in other words, what other places I call practice, it turns, it turns quickly into a banner. I call it a banner. Uh, in ideological theory, they call it master signifiers, okay? Because it, uh, it becomes something we identify with. But the question is, does it actually mean anything? Does it actually refer to anything in our lives? You know, so I was talking today to somebody about the inerrant Bible. Now, I believe in the authority of Scripture. But somehow the inerrant Bible, which tried to defend the authority of Scripture in 1922, and it probably was a good idea, and it probably worked. But somehow we got more, in, uh, a little later on when we defended ourselves against those people who don't believe in the Bible. And, and the inerrant Bible became the signifier. Do you believe in the inerrant Bible? I believe in the Bible. No, I mean the inerrant Bible. <laughs> what, yep. what does that mean? You, you are not a real Christian unless you believe in the inerrant Bible. And, and then you find out it doesn't really make any difference in people's lives. What difference does it make in your life? You don't actually read the Bible. You just believe in the inerrant Bible. And this is what happens. And now we become the people who believe in the inerrant Bible, the evangelicals, against those liberals who don't. And we define ourselves, and this makes enemies. And that's just one example. So belief, we've got we've to keep pushing for what difference does this make in your life? How do you read the Bible? How do you submit to the authority of the Word of God in the Bible? How does Jesus, how do you get closer to who Jesus is and, and being present with him in your life and making him Lord of your life as you read the Bible. Did you, do you understand what I'm trying to Separate belief from practice. It turns into a banner we wave, but it doesn't mean anything anymore in our lives. This happens all the time. Yeah. All the time. It's the way ideology works, and it, it really does, um, I don't want to say destroy our Christian lives, but diminishes. Mm -hmm. It minimalizes the power and the presence of Jesus Christ in our lives, because we're all about defining ourselves over against other people. Mm -hmm. So the big question is, how do we avoid that? We always push to the discipleship question. What difference does this make in your life? In the, in the book, I talk about uh, how do we read Scripture again uh, as people when we disagree? How do we not use it as an enemy-making machine uh, to try and prove that I'm right and you're wrong? How do we read it together to discern how to obey and live under the authority and presence and power? Did you hear that, Pentecostals? I said power of the living Christ in our lives. That's good. Amen. I, I have a— uh, Dark, I mean, Sorry, I just no, carried no. away. <laughs> That's great. Please <laughs> do We're going to turn that into its own clip. It's going to go out on YouTube. It's going to go viral. And... <laughs> That's right. <laughs> no, so— on in the inerrancy of Scripture, I've had a conversation with uh, several people before, particularly about uh, Genesis 1 and 2, 
Um, some young earth creationists really like to wave the banner of, I take the Bible literally, creation happened according to Usher's chronology, and if if that's not true, then everything else in my Christian... I literally have had somebody tell me, if if the Bible wasn't... If, if the Genesis account didn't happen in a literal six days five, or 6,000 years ago, then everything in the Christian life falls apart. And it, it just left me stunned. Yeah. Because there are so many, well, first off, there are so many Christians around the world who have never taken that literally um, a day in their lives, and yet somehow they lead faithful lives following Christ and do wonderful things for the kingdom of God. But secondly, and this is why I really like your your point about what, um, connecting it to actual practical discipleship and how we live out our lives, just, just let's ask the question, how does a literal interpretation of Genesis 1 and 2 that has to take place 6,000 years ago affect the way that we live our lives versus how a more figurative interpretation of Genesis 1 and 2 affects the way that we live our lives? And I would argue that in both cases, the only thing that really affects our lives is an understanding that God initiated this entire act of creation and what he's doing in redemptive history is described there in the way that he created or brought humanity into existence, and especially what he does in chapter 3 and and throughout the rest of Genesis. And I don't see that changing, whether you interpret it literally or figuratively or what your timeline is. Um, But it's really tough because when when I have those kind of conversations, it feels like I'm just talking to a brick wall because if if I don't accept their their truth, regardless of whether I argue for mine or not, it's like they they just don't even want to have a conversation with me. It's like I'm not I'm not worth listening to. Yeah, which is quite the challenge. It is, and I but I think that's the litmus test that you that you put forth is how does it affect my life? And by the way. So the way these podcasts usually work is I do the bulk of the the show prep and, and the reading, and I would like to point out that you have just done, Josh, without having read the book, a, a wonderful <laughs> summary of uh, what David does in the book, describing Genesis 1 through 3 and that whole narrative and why it matters or doesn't matter. So anyway, Guys, that's bonus. I, I, don't, I, I don't know if I said this in the book, but uh, there's a church down the road. I'm here in my office in Chicago. There's a church about mm, 10 miles up that direction. They put in their belief statement on their website, uh, seven-day, literal seven-day creation. Everybody who believes in literal seven-day creation within uh, 100 miles drives to that church. And they have a little club over there, and they stick together. And um, frankly, um, that – you know, I I always say – I don't know if I want to be a member of a church that agrees with me on everything. <laughs> uh, but those people are not going to get challenged in their life. They're going to like stand by some basic truths until Jesus comes. And that really separates them from mission. Yeah. Yeah. It, yeah. It, 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 you talk about that too in the book and how we need, we actually need other Christians who have different experiences, different perspectives that we should be interacting with because they challenge us and they, they, they challenge us to look deeply at things that, that we haven't seen before. And, and that can be a source of growth in and of itself. We have so many challenges these days, so many things that we've never had to deal. Well, I say we, I mean, any, 
My parents never had to deal with any of this. It never even entered the horizon. And we and we get into little uh, uh, clubs, mm-hmm. and we don't talk to each other. We desperately need to discern what God is doing and how to navigate. There is so much. I can think of three or four issues in my little church. I'm part of a church plant. Uh, and we need to talk to each other on these issues, but some people just get afraid and want to stick together. And um, I'm, I'm telling you, folks, the church is the place where God wants to work all this out and transform the world. Yeah. Tell um, what is the role that Christendom has played in the the I, you talk about it in the book, right? And, and I think it's a huge part of where we're at with our defensive posture, especially in the United States, that Christendom has led us to a place where we feel like we have a right to sort of defend ourselves and do the things that, that we do because we're we're afraid to let go of that power. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, uh, you're so uh, right on that. Um, you know, United States, even though it was uh, started or on the on the foundation of separation of church and state, has been a Christendom place built on the assumption that the majority of the population was Christian or at least accepted being a Christian nation and. Um, Culturally, uh, most of our life, especially for white Christians, white Protestants, white evangelicals, uh, we were in power. What we said went. We never got challenged. I mean, Andy of Mayberry uh, uh, on TV in the 50s and 60s went to church every Sunday. And and Barney Fife, bless his heart, he sang in the (laughs) choir. Okay, nobody questioned anything. Uh, And and, but but. Everything's changed, and when and so we we are used to having power. We're actually, I would argue, church life is used to looking up and accepting expert uh, authority, like the pastor rules kind of thing. And all of a sudden, that's up for grabs. I mean, not all of a sudden; it's been breaking apart for oh, ten, twenty, thirty years. But but now we what we say actually has no authority. Actually, there's a resentment in our in our country in large parts of our country mm-hmm. and so um yeah and so now we're faced with having to defend and or our uh, um uh uh help people understand why we believe what we believe we actually have to believe what we believe <laughs> and we actually have to live it in order for anybody to believe we believe it and all of a sudden we're in a completely different uh posture and so we are defensive we're used to exerting power we don't have it anymore, so we find ways to keep exerting power, like finding – I don't want to get anybody upset, but finding a president who uh, at least seems to be doing our bidding in Washington, D.C., even though everything he does and everything he says and everything he stands for is against everything that yeah. we've ever believed in. But we're going to get this and this and this out of this to hold on to the last vestiges yeah. of Christian culture. Because I want my kids to be protected, and I'm sorry it's not going to work. I'm sorry. I wish it could. Part of me wishes it could work, but it's a disaster. And now mm-hmm. we have to go back to being the church, a way mm-hmm. of life under the lordship of Christ, living in the risen, in the presence of the risen Christ, in the power of the Holy Spirit. We have to go back to doing it uh, yeah. because we don't have the culture to support us anymore. Yeah, and we have to realize. In that return to the way Christ did it, we have to realize the way he did it 
in his own time in 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 in, uh, in in place, right? The Jews were expecting a conquering Messiah to come and throw over or overthrow the Roman Empire with power, coercion, and 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 the sword. And he comes in and he fundamentally says, "No, this is not the way." And they try to do it a few times, right? They're like, "Okay, here, here's the guy." And what does he do? He slips away. <laughs> and um, you know, even Satan comes and he tempts him. Here, here's the entire world. I'll give it to you. And it's like one of my professors in seminary pointed out. It's like, wow, that would have been a really great moment for God to go ahead and inaugurate His kingdom. It could have been done right then and there, right? Satan is giving it to him, and yet he chooses not to do that. I think that has to play a major role in how we, as the church, see ourselves in relation to the world and how we go about witnessing to the kingdom that is breaking in. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. The kingdom could have started uh, uh, in that temptation by Satan, but it wouldn't have been God's kingdom. It would have been a kingdom of the world. Uh, God's presence is non-coercive, faithful love, you know, limitations. He's faithful, patient, ever patient. Uh, and um, he he works through his presence, and so uh, yeah. When he says uh, like the disciples are always saying, uh, "Who gets to sit on the right hand? Who gets to sit on the left? Who gets to tell people what to do?" You know, I've been waiting for this moment my whole life, and he goes, he goes something like, "Oh, please, you idiots! One more time, I have to explain this to you." <laughs> and, and he and he, uh, he says, "Not like the Gentiles do." We shall serve one another. Out of my presence, the kingdom will come. Remember in Luke 22, he says, after they try that stunt, the disciples, he says something like, as the Father's given me a kingdom, so uh, I give to you. And he points to the table, basically saying, this table, my presence here, this is how the kingdom shall come in to the world. And I just, I just don't think somewhere along the line, evangelicals like me forgot. We thought... That, that Jesus will get his work done if we vote for the right person. If we just get this government straightened out and get five new laws passed to implement. And, and Jesus is going, you idiots, not again. <laughs> <laughs> not like the Gentiles. I want to work through my presence in the world. Will you just make space for me and the world will be changed. Mm-hmm. But Satan's always tempting us the same way again and again and again. That's the message of faithful presence. And it's in, a, in another way, the same message of the church of us versus them. If we don't get out of this antagonistic pull and allow God, God works in the struggles, in the sufferings, in the antagonisms, in the brokenness. That's he enters in. You ever notice Jesus did not come on a, a tank. He came into a manger to be present with us and bring uh, the gospel. I'm getting my phone. Uh, you guys, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, so let's um, let's talk about then what happens is because I love the way you structure the book in that you know you you introduce the problem and then you deal with three main areas of antagonism, which I do believe are at the heart of all of the other antagonisms and, and issues banners that that we put up. But you talk about the Bible. Um, Oh man, 
the second one. <laughs> the, salvation. Yeah, the, the, the conversion, the Bible conversion, and then the church. Because I'm I'm jumping to the third yeah. one, so sorry that it's it's on my mind. Um, so, it, but it occurs to me, and I think you do a wonderful job of again showing how how we have been divided, and then putting forth a vision for that particular um, point, the Bible conversion or the church that that sort of should be the thing that we all are able to rally around. So, but let me ask you then, what happens if we have a fundamental disagreement within the church about some of those those main points? Like, for instance, let's just take the Bible, right? And, and, and I love that you're doing this book on what is the church, because likewise, I feel, I feel the same way about the Bible. And I, and I feel like if people can just get to a place where you can understand fundamentally what the Bible is, it, it changes the way that you, you read it and approach it and, you know, think about it. And so you can, you know, a lot of us are really, uh, b- the word is bibliolatrists, you know, like we worship the Bible, we think of the Bible more than we think of, you know, Jesus, the, the one whom the Bible proclaims, and we sort of, you know, put the cart before the horse here. And so, but so how do you go about working out your salvation, I suppose, with somebody who fundamentally doesn't look at the Bible as God's, the story of God's grand narrative, and instead is looking at it in a way of facts and figures? How, how can we make space to have that conversation in a non-antagonistic way? Uh, now, you're talking about using the Bible uh, in evangelism? Is that what you're saying? I'm talking, or are no, you talking about- well, we could talk about that. I'm talking about like the, within the church though. So like, you know, oh, we, okay. we, we see people who have those conversations and say, no, 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 no it's, it's not. It is a facts and figures book and we have to, you know, I don't know if anybody right. would actually say that, but that's the way in which they communicate. Yeah. Well, you know, um, so first of all, we get into these really bad habits because, uh, of Christendom. Uh, where we're used to an expert uh, opening the Bible and giving us these these propositional things that we grab hold of and actually we control and we use to live a, a better Christian life. We got all these bad habits that we have to break ourselves of. I mean, part of the bad habit surrounding that is the habit that we think there's no interpretation. We just think uh, our pastor went up on Mount Sinai last night, uh, heard directly from God that this is what it means. He came down, and now he normally was a he, uh, and he told us what to do. And um, I'm sorry, but um, the history of the Bible and the history of where it, of how it developed and the practice, you know, Acts chapter two, uh, they read, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. They together. Uh, there was teachers in the midst. There was even prophets in the midst. Uh, but they were together. They read it together. So uh, we need to learn how. Don't don't get me wrong. We need teachers to teach and preachers to preach, and 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 build up the body of Christ and center us around the reality of who Jesus is, what He's doing in our lives, and how to call each one of us to obey and live into the kingdom. Uh, but. Uh, there will be disagreements. Like um, in our church, we had a disagreement. This was a couple, two, three years ago. Uh, we had women preachers. We had women um, presiding over the Lord's table. But for some reason, two people had a problem with women being elders at our church. We didn't even like the word elder, by the way. I mean, I realize it's in the pastoral epistles, but there's plenty of other names for uh, leaders in the church other than elder. But but 
what we did was we learned. So uh, this is the Anabaptist tradition. Whenever you have a problem, uh, Matthew 18, you go to the person, you say, I got a problem. So this particular guy said, came to a couple of pastors and said, I got a problem. Some women have been nominated as elders. The Bible says blah, 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 blah. And there was another person, too, uh, who had the same problem. And so we decided to hold a town hall meeting, and we started to read Scripture together. Now, the first thing we did was we said, now, look, tell us everybody. So not the whole church came, but about 30 of us came. Everybody who was vested in the, in the decision, in the discernment for the church. And uh, we said, where, where, how have you interpreted these verses, and what's your background in terms of understanding these? Where'd you come from? Where'd you learn this interpretation? Well, it was striking that people came from different contexts, and it uh, impacted how they discerned what this text meant. And they also learned other people came from other contexts and, and read the same text differently. So out of that space, space was opened up. People like, go, oh, really? Actually, it's not that you don't believe in the Bible. You do believe in the Bible. But maybe the way I've been seeing it is maybe God's calling me to see something else happening here. And so the teachers taught the prophets. We went through seven weeks of this. And then at the end, we came up with a, with a statement about what we had been learning about women in ministry and we uh, we went one to five on everybody, and everybody went one to five. Five means I'm 100%. I have no doubt this this is where God's calling us. One means the devil is at work here. If we go along with this, hell is going to break loose, and our and the world's over. Uh, everybody was a five. There were two fours, which meant I can't wholeheartedly agree with this. But I trust the spirit is at work in this place, and I can follow this for our church. Out of that, I'm telling you, a very um, an amazing coalescence happened. There was a guy, one of the guys who objected to women being elders, who always had this thing, as this he had creased on his forehead. He was always, it looked like, folks, if you can't see it, it's a very angry face, worried face, <laughs> had headaches all the time, always, almost... Um, what do you call it? Migraines, gone. Yeah. Wow. Gone. Huh. And we have discerned the spirit. He's been set loose and set free. And I believe this is what happens when we gather together and learn a new practice of reading the Bible together and discerning by the spirit and the gifts of the spirit. You Pentecostals still believe in the gifts, don't you? Yes. Okay then you can rely on the gifts of the Holy Spirit to lead a church into these territories and let him work. Yeah. And, and, and part of that, we have to be comfortable sitting in that tension and, and wrestling with each other through those, uh, through those difficult moments. It takes, it takes a lot of humility to, to be able to approach those situations and say, you know, I'm, I'm willing to listen to you. I might not agree with you right now, and I might not even come to the same conclusion. Like, but I'm willing to come to the table and sit down because we're all trying to work. And, and in fact, it's what you call the um, the beyond enemy uh, space. Is we're moving yes. to a place which which it's not a. Uh, I, I was worried this might get a little nerdy. I, I thought maybe 
I was a little worried at the intro that you were going to go Hegelian and, and just sort of do a, you know, a thesis, uh, antithesis, and then synthesis. Like, and you said, no, 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 it's beyond that. It's a, it's a completely different third way that really moves us beyond. And, and I think this, the story that you just told really, really demonstrates that because that is something that is a unique aspect of the body of Christ that we do is that we don't just simply say, we, we don't compromise on it. We don't say, okay, well, you know, you don't, you, you think women shouldn't be in the elder position. You guys think you do. Okay, we'll just split and we're good to go. You know, it's like, no, no, no. We come together because we're united around, in this case, the community and in our dedication to the, the scriptures can really teach us something here. Let's see if we're missing something and then come to a conclusion together as, as the body of Christ. Like that is an incredible peacemaking example of of who we're supposed to be i think in the world sounds like what jesus prayed for in john 17 i think it it, 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 it striking <laughs> resemblance there striking resemblance that's right, that's right. yeah uh, and so i think i'll oh, go ahead oh i i just think yeah we need to un- like for instance uh to get on to get on to very uh tricky territory here mm-hmm. uh sexuality uh, we're 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 holding our guns here. It's either uh, not a firm or a firm LGBTQ. But here, here's the here's the place I'd like us to go. Can we look at the structures of the way we see sexuality and how it's so non-biblical? I'll give you one example. Um, everybody in the evangelical church, especially you Pentecostals. Think you got to be attracted to the person to get married. Oh, I it was love at first sight. I'm so attracted to her. Blah blah blah. I always tell people in my sexual ethics class the the, the last <laughs> the last thing the last pressure I want at my age is to have to get up every morning and worry if I'm attracted to my wife or if my wife is. I'm sorry if I'm if. My wife is attracted to me. I don't want marriage and everything <laughs> based on attraction. Do you realize everything to do with misogyny, me too, all the ways we built attraction, I'm talking Dr. Dobson, I'm talking Hallmark cards, everything that fills the minds. And we made attraction the idol and the God. Mm. Forget whether you can be attracted to a man, a woman, a tree, or whatever, and I'm not trying to make light of it because there's a lot going on here. We have we have trained, uh, mainly because of evangelicalism, trained young people to think, I've got to be attracted to this person and get married or my life is over. And actually, that's never been true in the history of the church it only started happening 150 years ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, the idea that you would even be attracted to someone before you got married to them. I'm telling you, we need to look at what we're doing to people in our sexuality before we even get to affirming or non-affirming. That gets to the beyond enemies problem here, is that there's so much we're not dealing with by just getting into arguments with the way things are. And God wants to work and wants to transform our lives. And we desperately need it in the area of sexuality. And I'm talking about everybody, heterosexuals, uh, gay, lesbian, others, trans, all. We need, we need to be saved.
Yeah. And now you just get into like the heart of the issue instead of just dealing with those surface things. We're really trying to look for the heart of God in this thing and, and, and figure out, let, let that guide us. Let that be the thing that, that shows us, you know, how we're supposed to walk. And it, yeah, it, it, that just makes too much sense to me. I don't know if, if we it's can. So true. <laughs> it's so true. Every time we get into one of these arguments, we should just remember Jesus looking, rolling his eyes back at the disciples going, oh, no, not again. You want to figure out who gets in charge? Oh, no, not – it's like five or six times in the Gospels. Yeah. Actually, he does the role I thing, I think, a hundred times in the Gospels <laughs> on various – We should, we should count that. How many times does Jesus roll his eyes? <laughs> that's what he's doing with us and all our fights and antagonisms. He mm-hmm. wants to work if we can just give up our egos and give up how dug in we are in our identity structures – and allow God to work in our lives. Identity, I think, is such a key thing. And really, uh, we, we were talking about uh, Jeff and Sid Holsclaw before the, the podcast started. Um, when we had them on and talked about their book, Does God Really Like Me? Um, their, their understanding of the, the primary cause of sin, which I think they got from somebody else, but I'm not remembering right off the top of my head who that was. But really, it's motivated by shame, we like to say that all of the that that pride is the root cause of of sin. It's um, the 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 main sin that we see in in Genesis chapter three. But really, they pointed out, um, and Jeff did a great job uh, explaining this, that in Genesis chapter three, the temptation for Eve was not becoming prideful and becoming like God. It was the serpent pointing out, you are not like God. Mm -hmm. You have a lack. You have something missing, which caused her to feel shameful, and the solution for that was in front of her as choosing to do something that would solve that problem of shame. And I I think this is a, a really, really powerful way of looking at what causes a lot of these problems uh, going back to what you uh, read from 1 Corinthians 3, when we operate in the flesh, we really are are missing out on the identity that we now have as followers of Christ. And I think sometimes we feel like if we're not able to argue our point or to explain our position or to hold on to whatever truth we feel is most important— we feel like somehow our identity is under attack because now somehow we can't control what's going on around us. We're not in control of what happens to us. We're not in control of uh, the situation. And somehow we're less than. And I think especially like in this area of sexuality, we feel because that is so much a part of who we are as individuals, I mean, we all have experience in some way with our own sexuality and so when we talk about those issues there there's just naturally going to be a, a conversation about identity and when we feel that our identity is under attack we can't help but get defensive and so for me the looking at our lives as followers of Christ and primarily being identified as his children belonging to him where we lack nothing, we have nothing to prove, nothing to be afraid of. I mean, we really don't fully believe that because I think if we did, 
these kinds of issues wouldn't be a problem. We wouldn't be living in the flesh trying to cover up the shame problem as much. We would be operating in the spirit. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 Uh, uh, Josh, um, identity uh, is a absolute crucial uh, factor in how we get caught up in antagonisms. The word for it in um, critical theory is subjectivity. Uh, and the idea that the various uh, theorists talk about is uh, my subjectivity gets caught up in being against a cause. And now uh, it becomes all about me winning or the cause. And if I lose the cause, oh, no, I lose my identity. And the first thing Jesus says, so, so uh, when we make an enemy or we make an object uh, of an, uh, to, to rally against uh, our, our identities get sucked up in it. Jesus asks us when Matthew 18, when he says, if you have a conflict, he says, go to the person one, one to one. This shall not be ganging up a whole group of people against the person. He's always unwinding that. Uh, and, and instead he says, go face to face and see if they'll listen and go in my name under my authority. This is not about you. This is about the kingdom of God. We, in essence, every conflict is an opportunity to find our who we are in the person and work of Jesus Christ and what he's going to do through this. I'm going to find out more about myself in the kingdom by giving up my identity to uh, his lordship. You know, think about uh, every time you get into a nasty conflict and you're, you have to call somebody up and you have to go, oh, no, now I have to talk to them and now I have to face them and actually have to face more than one now and, 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 and how I'm going to be wrong and I, uh, and think about all those feelings and, and perverse anger about the whole thing. That's the battle for my identity. Jesus says, give it up and I, you will find out more about yourself as you allow me to work in this situation. I think that identity question is huge. Yeah. And and that's a, uh, I, I think that is the best example of what it means to die to yourself because it, it literally feels like you're dying to have to make that, like you're betraying yourself, yeah. right? Yeah. Like you're, you're losing out and not, you know, they were wrong or they, you know, or I, I they, it's me, me, me. And you have to die to that part of yourself and it hurts at times, but uh-huh. There's freedom on the other side. There is. Like, uh, okay, I was uh, about four years ago. I, I helped plant churches. There was three pastors, and and they're in conflict. They'd been in conflict for over a year, three pastors of one church. And uh, so I said, okay, finally. I said, okay, we're not getting anywhere. Let's invite the rest of the elders in. And the elders all pointed to this one guy. They said, it's him. It's him. I go, wow, I didn't expect that. I thought it was the other guy. It was him. And and so I said to George, I, I made up the name. That's not his real name. I said, George, you got to go first. You got to confess your sin. And um, uh, he thought about it. He couldn't do it. He says because Peter over there is worse than I am. Now I agreed. I agreed Peter was worse. I agree. And, and in fact, four years later, I can now tell you some horrific details of just how bad Peter is. Mm. Okay, but George needed to go first. Give it up put it into the hands of God and then George would have been found out and the other person would have been found and then we would all confess our sins. But no, George said, no, I am, that guy's worse than me. I'm not confessing my sin before the church. Yeah. 
if we can just do that, if we can just go on the cross and say, Lord, I'm a sinner and I was wrong here and I ask your forgiveness. Oh, man, God's going to bless you with a huge identity in him and you're going to become power for the kingdom. Uh, yeah. f- final question, and this is one of our favorite questions we we love to ask guests when we have time. With this one, I'm just I've got to I've got to ask it. Um, it. Here's the question, and then I'll elaborate to give you time to think. Uh, what is the most valuable lesson you've learned in the Christian life? You actually make a good mention of this in your book at one time when you say when you're talking about conversion, and you say there's not just one conversion that happens, but there are many conversions that we that we have to go through, and we learn things about. Uh, Christ and in our relationship with him. And, and the way that we ask that question is because we found that there are moments when you, you have encounters or realizations that once you have those, nothing in your life can ever go back to being the same. And there's, there's many of them over our lives, we realize, but does anything come to mind as being the most valuable or uh, impactful? <laughs> uh, yeah, I was just talking about this with somebody, uh, uh, Okay, so we're all in this room here talking, the three of us, and we're all white guys. And um, we're all used to uh, power in a way. We're used to posturing. We're used to people looking up to us, especially if we're pastors. Um, But, uh, folks, uh, the world's changing, and we need to make space for other voices. We need to make space for other for because the deeper, the richer the conversation, and that might mean, that has to mean, I defer, I wait, I don't assume, uh, I don't assume platform. I don't assume the platform's mine. And, and that'll just free up space for God to work, and that'll also free up space for God to use me in a way he hasn't used me. And so I, I feel like we need, to get back, I've learned I've got to pray the presence of Christ and submit to the presence of Christ in every situation. This goes at home. This goes when I'm preaching uh, and not assume platform, but allow him to work. I think that little shift turned me from being a road preacher to being a preacher of the gospel and allow people to see me and hear afresh. Uh, with sincere words, what God wants to say, not what I want to say, or not how I want to posture myself, or not how I want to perform. God wants to use me, but I got to submit to him and be present to his presence. I think that's probably one of the biggest things uh, in the last, I'd say, 20 years changed so much. And by the way, I got a lot more to go on that just one lesson in several areas of my life. So anyways, I, I hope that maybe somebody. Yeah, no, That's I love great. that answer. Um, where can people go to find out more about you and your work and uh, get a copy of your book? Uh, well, it's, of course, on Amazon, The Church of Us versus Them. Uh, but my Facebook is where all the conversations go on. And Fitch Est, F-I-T-C-H-E-S-T, one word. Look for me on Facebook. Follow me there. Join in on the conversations. Don't get too uh, mad at me because, you know, it's <laughs> – there's no antagonism here. We're just asking questions and, and good things happen there. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And we'll have links to everything in the show notes so you guys can go down there and get connected uh, with Dave and pick up a copy of this book. Highly, highly recommend. I think everybody needs to read this. Uh, it, it will change your life. It'll change your perspective. And uh, I think 
in that changing, it'll make us all stronger. So, uh, Dave, thank you so much. I feel like we could talk for a few more hours. We'll definitely have to have you back on uh, next time when you finish your next book. So thank you so much. Great to be with you two guys. Lord's blessing on you and your ministry. How can you create a lifestyle of discipleship? Most Christians think discipleship is a program or a few practices thrown in at the beginning or end of the day. But we want to help you create a lifestyle where walking with Jesus throughout the day is not only possible, but natural. And we have a tool that's going to help you do just that. It's called the Daily Growth Journal. It's a guided journal that's going to help you become secure in your identity with God and authentically walk with Him in your daily life. Growing daily in your walk with Christ is possible if you cultivate a lifestyle of discipleship. And the Daily Growth Journal will help you do just that. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Daily Growth Discipleship Podcast. To find out more about David's work, check the links in the show notes below or connect with him at facebook.com slash fitchest. If you like what you've heard this week, give us a review on Apple Podcast or the podcast player you use. We'd love to hear from you. If you want to stay up to date on everything happening at Daily Growth Discipleship, go to dailygrowthdiscipleship.com and subscribe for free. You can also subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. 